Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Jesus said, There will be signs in sun and moon and stars, and upon the earth distress of nations in perplexity at the roaring of the sea and the waves, men fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, look up, and raise up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. And he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. The Gospel of the Lord. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. The scripture lessons for Advent, especially in the early weeks, I think can come as quite a shock for those of us that weren't raised immersed in the church's calendar. It seems to me that as the idea of Advent has seeped more into the psyche of more Christians in the West, it seems to have done so sort of cloaked as an extended warm and fuzzy anticipation of sweet little baby Jesus. But as our lessons this evening reveal, Advent, Advent is much more about an apocalyptic crisis than it is about cute babies in ugly Christmas sweaters. We say this repeatedly around here, but I think it's worth repeating. Anticipating Christ's arrival is, in some sense, to anticipate his judgment. And therefore, it should require us to look, perhaps a bit more clear-eyed than we're usually comfortable with, at our own lives. People will faint with fear and foreboding of what is coming upon the world, says Jesus in our gospel lesson. I don't think I've seen that one on a holiday greeting card. Insofar as Advent is an anticipation of Christ's arrival, it echoes some of the themes of Lent. Father Alexander Schmemann, a Russian theologian, refers to these seasons of longing and anticipation and introspection as a bright sadness, he says. The sadness of my exile, of the waste I have made with my own life, and the brightness of God's presence and forgiveness, the joy of recovered desire for God, the peace of the recovered home. I think this is a central part of the antinomy of Christian psychology, which is that the deeper that we're pulled into the life of God, the more aware we must become of the darkness of the world and the brightness of God's glorious presence. The trick, though, is to remember that our awareness of the world's brokenness and evil should always bring an awareness of what that other great Russian named Alexander said, if only it were all so simple, 
If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy his own heart? We have to remember that the darkness and brokenness is not just out there. It's also in here. Advent is the beginning of the church year. It's our new year, wherein we begin again to peer into the mystery of how God was able to do what Alexander Solzhenitsyn was so perplexed by. He was able to destroy evil without destroying his creation. And that is a mystery that is brought forth and deepened for us in the Incarnation. And as our lessons this evening make very clear, Advent is a season with multiple horizons. We anticipate, yes, Christmas and the joy of Christ's nativity, the quiet humility of that stable cave, the sweet contemplation of St. Mary as shepherds and angels converge in her makeshift maternal ward to pay homage to this sweet newborn king. But there's another horizon looming because we are also anticipating this king's return. And it's a return that will bring about first confusion and chaos, and the nations of the earth will be thrown into tumult. But his arrival will bring a deeper peace and constancy. And so he says to his followers, hold your head up high. For even in this chaos, your redemption is drawing near. As our reading from the prophet Zechariah says, there will be continuous day, no longer day and night. It will no longer be a shifting and a changing. It will just be eternally Christ's present. As we have our scripture lessons humming in harmony in the background of our minds, I'd like us to consider three things regarding Christ's kingship and return. The first is that as the prophet states, Yahweh will become king over all of the earth. Christ's kingship is not parochial. It is not geographically limited, and it is not optional. His jurisdiction is universal, his reign is eternal, and his power is unmitigated. Consider the other great rulers and conquerors of the earth. Genghis Khan, Alexander the Great, Napoleon Bonaparte. Where are they? What do they rule? Nothing. Regardless of how great their power or military skill or political maneuvering, every warrior, every king, every ruler has been bested by death, defeated in the end, their kingdoms handed off to others, carved up or destroyed. Even the most powerful ruler you can think of was born, not of his or her own will, but from their parents. They came from dust, and they return to dust. But Christ is the eternal Son of the Father, light from light, God from God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. By him all things were made, and for us and for our salvation he came down from heaven, was incarnate from the Holy Spirit, and born of the Virgin Mary. God the Son existed before all things, and through him 
all things were called into existence, and by him all things hold together, and without him nothing was made that has been made. Not only this, but even in humbling himself and taking on human flesh, subject to decay and death, when death, who up until this point has a pretty great record, right? Undefeatable death, where his odds are essentially 100%, you're always going to put your money on death winning. When death encounters God the Son, death itself is destroyed by Christ. It's completely undone. Christ as king will not retire. He is not subject to decay. He has defeated death, and his existence stretches beyond the universe in a way that our minds cannot even comprehend. His lordship is universal, and upon his return, it will be immediate. Christ is a king unlike any other. His kingdom is universal, and it is one in which every living creature will give obeisance. The second thing I'd like to draw your attention to is that Christ, we're told, will return in glory with his saints, as St. Paul puts it in our New Testament lesson. Whereas the prophet in our Old Testament lesson says, the Lord my God will come and all of the holy ones with him. Given our current cultural trends and political situations, it would be easy to inadvertently view Christ, I think, as a sort of divine strongman. Him alone, right? And while I do want to be careful and point out that classical theology would heartily concur that God's existence isn't a thing that can be measured like other existing things. He is the inventor and ground of existence. Indeed, God exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and needs nothing else to be complete and happy and fully himself. But I do want to say that I think these descriptions of Christ's glorious return in the company of his saints are rather striking and should serve to expand our imaginations a bit. I think one of the ways in which Protestantism has become deeply impoverished is through a well-meaning attempt to keep our focus on Christ the King. They've essentially cleared the room of everyone else. And of course, of course, we readily recognize and heartily celebrate Christ's unique kingship. He is God. His saints are not. But I do think we're missing out on aspects of his glorious rule when we choose to ignore those followers of his that he has chosen to honor and hold as exemplars in his kingdom. So we should observe the feast days of the saints in the church's calendar. We should study the lives of the saints in a prayerful way, not simply as brain ticklers, but with the goal of patterning our lives after them, that we too might re be received with joy and honor in the kingdom of God. As I said a few weeks ago, we live in a world that is in desperate need of better heroes. One of the beauties of having so many saints that have already come before us is that there's been a saint in almost any scenario that you could find yourself in. Business owners, day laborers, mothers, fathers, people who suffer from illness and poverty, rich socialites who gave it all away, there are countless examples for us to follow of people who have lived ordinary lives in radical ways 
as they followed Christ. And Christ has decided that he will be a king ruling in glory in the midst of his saints. So we should speak their names with reverence. We should honor their lives lived in slavery to Christ, and we should remember them when we gather together. Because this is how Christ chooses to reveal and glorify himself, is to come in a party, not all alone. I think one of the reasons that we should remember the saints is the third thing that I'd like to bring to your attention this evening, and that is that our hearts need to be strengthened in holiness that we may be blameless before God when Christ returns, as Paul says in our New Testament lesson. Again, we need better heroes. We need to look to people that have run their race well and finished it and received the crown of life. And we need to pattern our lives after them. If you've been baptized in the triune name, you have been washed in the bath of regeneration. In receiving the oil of chrism, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit and you have been set apart. You have been made holy unto the Lord, which means you don't belong to your career. You don't belong to your retirement account. You don't belong to Jeff Bezos and Amazon Prime. You certainly don't belong to your passions and desires that are at war within you, nor to the kingdom of darkness and death. You have been bought with a price. You are not your own. You belong to King Jesus. Your baptism is the most foundationally orienting fact of your life. because it's that thing which brings you out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of his glorious light. Whether you're a parent or a child or a boss or an employee, a student or an educator, if you've been baptized into Christ's church, your identity is primarily found in your citizenship in his kingdom, your adoption into his family. This adoption is predicated upon his mercy and love, his glorious defeat of death and the devil, so that you can be brought back into your true home, which is Christ himself. So as Advent begins, I say to you, seek after him. Learn to hear his voice and do what he says. Give him right worship as his church gathers. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all. And may he so strengthen your hearts in holiness that you may be blameless before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.